The Diplomacy Dojo is a weekly discussion led by your board brother about diplomacy tactics and strategies. Let's listen in on what our players are discussing this week. My initial thought when I hear about taking risks in diplomacy is that I I always want to remind players, you got to take risks somewhere if you want to win the match. And it's a question of determining the moment that it's time to take a risk and where you're comfortable taking that risk. So that's your question. When or when not do you take those risks? Let's start from the analysis of getting a solo win. Because how people assess the risks they're willing to take to get a solo win often depends on how they value a solo win. For example, if you value a solo win as qualitatively superior to any draw or any draw size, where you're willing to risk almost anything in order to get that solo win, then you're a player who's probably more willing to take risks even right from the beginning. You know, taking an opening move that has huge risk involved, but maybe it makes your ability to get a solo win down the line you think higher. Uh, there are some scoring systems that where a solo win is treated much differently, like a carnage scoring system. So if you're, if you're thinking like that, you might take risks early and often. Whereas a zero sum scoring system where a solo win is not necessarily worth that much more than a draw. Like if you're doing draw size scoring, uh, you know, a three way draw, while well, solo wins worth three times as much as a three way draw. Or if you're doing some of squares, maybe, you know, nearly getting a solo win is worth uh, half as much or even more than half as much as a solo win. So uh, your assessment's going to be different. There's even more context you can add to it, which is if you're in a tournament and you know that you need some kind of result in order to, let's say, get to the next round of the tournament, then um, anything less than that is worth zero. <laughs> When you, when you look at it that way, oh, I got 50 points. Yeah, but you needed 51 to get to the next round. So the difference between zero and 50 is all, you know, that's all the same. There's no difference. But similarly, if you know for sure that you have the 51 you need to get to the next round, then, then risking that 51 for anything might be kind of foolish because, hey, why not just clock to the next round and, and then see what happens? Some players will think like that. There are other factors that I would weigh as well, which is to try to try to estimate the the, the payoff of a given risk that you're going to take. I think you you alluded to this earlier. Hmm. Well, you know, if I get this right, I might solo win, and if I get this wrong, I lose a supply center. Oh, wh- you know, whoop de doo. <laughs> that's not that's not a very big uh, loss. And uh, I actually had to uh, learn from my own mistakes. In the 2019 ODC, there was a turn where I could have risked a supply center that I had. I think I was at 16, and I, I there was a chance I would go down to 15, but if I was right, I would go up to 17. And I didn't appreciate, because I wasn't that familiar with sum of square scoring, that because sum of square scoring is exponential, gaining a 17th supply center was worth something like twice as much as what I would lose losing one supply center. So if I had been thinking more mathematically or more rationally, I probably would have been willing to take that risk. Let's say we're in a draw size scoring system where as long as you have one supply center and the match ends in a draw, you're in. In that that situation, if you think that the worst case outcome is just that you get set back 
but that your ability to get into a draw is about the same as it was before. Like, let's say that you're a France who's at eight supply centers. You control all your home centers in Iberia. You could take a big risk uh, to try to expand, maybe, you know, get into maybe be the board leader or something. And if, oh, it doesn't work, I get set back. Retreating into your home centers in Iberia or eventually into Iberia, you probably still get in the draw. So taking a major risk at that point is not a big deal. Whereas if you were talking about some of square scoring system where the number of supply centers that you have matters quite a bit, knowing that you could be rolled back down to a handful of centers, ooh, you know, that might be might be more risk averse in that situation. So we could also get a little more tactical in terms of when when is it worth taking a risk? And I'll explain what I mean. There are moments in a diplomacy match where I feel very confident that I know what the other players are going to do, either because uh, I, like it's a gunboat game and I, I just feel, oh yeah, I know this this how this person thinks I'm totally I'm totally in this guy's head. Uh, and so I'm willing to take a risk that, uh, yeah, you know, if this if he moves to Silesia, I'm in trouble, but he won't. You know, if I if I feel if I feel that way, then maybe I'll take that risk. And in a press game, even more so, where you can just make a straight credibility determination of what the player is telling you. You say, okay, England says he's going to move to Mid Atlantic Ocean, and I believe this. I believe it. I think that's going to happen. And so, yeah, I'll take a risk. If England's lying and moves this other way, I'll be in big trouble. But I, I don't think that. And so, uh, if you have a, if you have confidence that you know what the other players are going to do, then I think that is a great time to take a risk. They could be lying. Uh, and so that you might, <laughs> might get in trouble. But if you, if you play with the assumption that other players are going to exploit every move you make or that they're always going to be lying to you, you'll never get anywhere. I'll, I'll give an example of um, what might be seen as risk-taking by some people. Uh, in, a, in a match that I have going on right now, oh, it's, it's getting towards endgame, and one of the players in the endgame said, I... I'm impressed with your press style. It seems like you only lie to somebody if when you get away with it, there's nothing they can do about it afterwards. And I would describe that as a, a good moment to take a risk. Ah, yes. Uh, hmm. If I, if I, I'm lying, I'm lying to this player. Uh, but if they do what they're promising and I abuse their promise. I take advantage of them and do a backstab or, or something. You know, I do something that's inconsistent with what I was promising. There will be nothing they can do about it. If I'm caught, let's say they counter me somehow, well, then they were, they were lying to me too. So, so what of it? We both lied to each other. I... I think that's a, that's an okay time to take a risk. It, it's it's a I guess it's a political or a diplomatic risk. You're sliding somebody. You've you've used your your credibility. But if they can't retaliate, that's maybe a worthwhile move. On defense, uh, if I'm playing draw size scoring, then I am usually willing to take enormous risk to ensure that I can have a chance at getting in a draw by powering somebody up. I call this strategy, take yourself hostage. I think that can be really effective. If you control a center like Portugal, Tunis, maybe St. Petersburg or Moscow, something that is, that's really hard to clear out if the stalemate line runs through 
that center. If the ultimate stalemate line runs through it, it's going to be hard to clear you out. So just give, you know, five supply centers to the board leader, something terrifying like that, so that everybody starts trying to defend your position instead of trying to kick you out of it. That's a big risk. They might solo in as a result. Like, let's say I'm Austria. It's a gunboat game. And Turkey, of course, starts moving towards me right away. And Italy antagonizes me from the first turn. And uh, Russia is not getting any advantages on me, but is trying to see, hey, maybe I can get something here. And it's going turn after turn. And like, dagnabbit, none of these players seems to have any thoughts on their brains other than how can I get the Austrian centers. So at some point, I'll determine, okay, you know, not, none of my signals have worked. Nothing is happening. I, you know what? Screw it. And I'll start, uh, maybe it's time to run away to Munich and Berlin. And yep, sorry, Germany, <laughs> your life is ruined. But but maybe I can get into a stalemate line there. Or I'm just going to throw everything I have to the West and and try to try to survive in the boot somewhere, you know, and pow power up Turkey or Russia. And uh, yeah, sucks to be you, Italy, but I, you were attacking me every turn without exception, so I don't, I don't really feel guilty about this. Uh, something like that. If, if, if many turns go by and it seems like the players are not convinced by what I'm doing, that they should change what they're doing strategically, then I need to do what I'm doing strategically. When it comes to taking small tactical risks, if I, if I think a solo win is in the cards for me like mm, you know i'm the i'm a slightly the board leader i have the positions you know just you i'm sure you know what i'm talking about you feel like mm, it seems possible then um there are moments where you, where in that position you're going to have to take huge risks that's because as you're getting in this into this position you probably have somewhere between 9 and 12 supply centers and most people have a rule of thumb that, well, I want to have 13 or 14 before I start going for a solo win. And that's, um, that maybe that attitude might serve you well in a low quality match where players don't understand how to play. But in a high level game, the other players will see that coming a mile away and uh, they'll do something to defend against it. You're not going to be able to brute force your way to a solo win. So you got to start thinking a couple turns ahead when you're more in the 9 to 12 range. And that means when you launch your amb your ambitious effort to get a solo win, there's going to be holes in your defense somewhere, or there's going to be raiders behind your line or something. There's going to be something because you just don't have enough uh, units to cover all the parts of the map. And that means making decisions like, you know what, I'm Germany, and if I'm going to win, I I just looking at this, I'm going to need Tunis somehow and doing something nuts like bypassing Iberia to get fleets into the Mediterranean much earlier, even though that means you're going to have to fight a brutal battle against whoever you left behind in Iberia. Uh, and you might not win as a result. You know, you might they, they might outplay you and survive. But would you have solo one if you had concentrated everything on getting Iberia? Probably not. You would reach 15 or 16 supply centers. And never cross the stalemate line or something like that. There's there's many other scenarios. I think it's worth taking or it's uh, just worth – it's necessary. It is, it is it's straight necessary to take tactical risks like that to be able to solo win in a high-level match. And so the, the, qual the whether you win or not will come down to whether you chose correctly where to allocate that risk or something like that. I am more willing to take risks if I assess 
the player with the player with respect to how do I phrase this? I'm taking a risk that uh, that another player might do something. If I assess that player to be a low quality player, then I'm more willing to take the risk because I think mm, I can just outplay that player at a later time. They won't make the right moves or they may not even perceive that there's an opportunity here to take advantage of me. And against a high-quality player, I usually play much more conservatively, simple, methodical. Hey, there's just no way they can take advantage of these moves. There's almost nothing they could do to backstab me. I'll play that way. And and I think many other players think similarly, which is why in uh, I have have a lot of experience playing high-level gunboat games. And uh, in my experience, high-level gunboat games can be long grinding matches because the players are not willing to um to go all in on offense they always leave some defense behind so that their ally doesn't feel tempted to backstab them which means that there's no overwhelming force set on offense so the the match can go on for quite a while without the players making much headway and it's kind of like the first player to really okay i'm gonna go all in i'm gonna send everything maybe that player makes a breakthrough or maybe that player gets stabbed (laughs) and so in in a press game if i assess that my ally is pretty canny i'll leave some i'll play a little more conservatively with respect to that ally Usually if, if, for me, especially if my ally makes the first move of like de-escalating an area or to make like a demilitarized zone, if they make the first move, I think to myself, okay, I either should reciprocate because they made this gesture or, um, or I just need to attack them (laughs) while, while I have this good opportunity, one or the other. But if they're showing me trust and I'm continuing to show them skepticism, that's like the worst of both worlds because I'm not getting the advantage of their trust, but nor am I getting the advantage of backstabbing them. In terms of understanding and predicting other players' moves, if I figure out that another player is um, squirrely, I usually take little risks with respect to them, and sometimes I even try to take them out because it might the, the problem might be not so much that they're unpredictable by anyone just that i am struggling to predict them and uh mm, <laughs> that's maybe someone who i want uh re- knocked out of the match because they're a bigger threat to me if i feel like i have a good understanding of how the other player thinks that makes me want to keep that player around if they're friendly towards especially if they're friendly towards me uh and especially Especially if there's no reason for them to know that I know how they play, because that means in the end game, I'll be able to exploit them and they they might not see that coming. Okay. I feel like we covered this topic. That reminds me of, of another kind of risk that um, I've thought about, which is when playing for a draw, my risk assessment sometimes... Uh, I become very conservative, and if I look at the board and see, ah, yes, if the play, if if my defending side simply plays correctly, we will guarantee a draw. There's no guesswork. If we just execute the moves correctly, we will draw. Then I have a very low tolerance for any risks, since I see a very clear path to end the game, 
And in a gunboat game, for example, if there's a player who seems kind of unreliable, uh, and I and I and I see the game headed in the direction of a draw, where I'll be the one trying to set up the draw, I'll try to take that player out, uh, e- even if it means a lot of risk, because I think if this player is around when we have to form the draw, they'll blow it. They'll just blow it somehow. I don't. I just. I assess this player as not understanding what it takes to form a stalemate line in gunboat diplomacy. Therefore, I lose if this player is somehow left alive in the match. Therefore, I'm risking very little by by throwing everything I have at taking this player out. I learned this from a couple of high level gunboat diplomacy players, and I, I've seen this in many matches, uh, and I do this as well, where I assess. Okay, I have to draw with somebody. Let's say I'm Turkey. And um, Austria and Italy are both somewhat viable, and either one could take out the other, and I could help. I, I got to think, am I going to have to play for a draw with both of these guys because they both know how to defend themselves and, and we'll just lose? Or, you know what, maybe Austria seems like he's got no idea what he's doing. I, I'll, change, I'll change course. I'm going to start helping Italy in every way. I don't need the centers myself. I'll just, just whatever it takes to get this Austrian knocked out of the match so that we have a, a surefire way to set up a stalemate line. If you think you're on a path to a solo win, then the sensible players are the ones you want to take out and keep around the players who are, uh, are naive or whatever. They, there's, there's, some, there's some flaw in how they're approaching the game. Those are players you want to keep because they'll facilitate your win. If a player shows something that's a blunder, I'd say usually that turns out to be accurate. I'll, this, is, this requires a lot of metagame analysis, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. In gunboat diplomacy, there's a temptation to go after a weak player so that you can gobble up their centers and get stronger. There's a big incentive to take out whoever seems weak, and the players will sometimes even smell blood. If you get off to a bad opening, like let's say you're Austria and Italy attacks you early, even if the Russian player wasn't really thinking about going after Austria, they're like, oh, it's my chance. This is my one chance to capture some centers. So they, they, they go nuts and they try to take out Austria. That, that kind of stuff can happen. And so because of that, to counter the phenomenon of sharks smelling blood, many gunboat players begin with a, with a really strong defensible, defensive opening that's hard to exploit. And so if a player makes an opening that's not very good, like it really doesn't make sense or leaves them open to attack, um, I usually assess them as being very naive or like maybe this is their first gunboat game or they're, they're inferring stuff from press, press diplomacy that doesn't apply to gunboat, something, something is really like not right with this player. And that usually turns out to be correct because experienced players are unwilling to do stuff like that. I will say, and it, a caveat, which is that um, in in some high-level gunboat games, I have seen players do moves, very good players, do moves that are not per se blunders, but they're kind of weird. They're not, they're not, con- they're not consistent with the metagame you would expect from high-level players. And their goal there is sometimes to throw you off the scent <laughs> that they're that they might be good. <laughs> So I think your example is touching on a, a kind of risk we hadn't discussed yet, but it, it's very germane to this conversation, which is uh, how do you assess your capabilities relative to the other players? 
in most games, not just diplomacy, but in any game, if you consider yourself to be very strong compared to your opponents, you, you likely you want to take a low risk strategy where you think, yeah, if, as long as my fundamentals are good and I know they are, then I will probably win because I can depend on the other players to make mistakes. I'll just, I'll just defeat them with my fundamentals. So I don't need to take big risks. Whereas if you assess, oh man, I got into a game with some guys that are much better than me. Uh, they're nice. Thanks for letting me play guys. And in, th in that situation, it may be time to take huge risks because if you just play a conservative game or a, a you know predictable game and rely on your fundamentals, you'll lose that. They'll beat you that way. So by take like maybe I'll get lucky, you know, maybe something um, if I if I do something that's unexpected or take them out of their comfort zone, then their experience won't be able to help them. Then it might be time to take big risks. And so there's a, there's a similar thing going on with what you were saying with an experienced player going up against other experienced players to do moves that are maybe theoretically the moves are not as good, but because the players will have less experience dealing with those moves, maybe you're going to get a psychological edge. Uh, in 1v1 diplomacy, I think about that a lot. If I'm playing against somebody who's got some familiarity with how the grind works, let's say in France versus Austria, that might be time for me to try some kind of wild strategy as Austria, like I'm going to take St. Petersburg as fast as possible and try to concentrate on Scandinavia. That's not a very good strategy. Uh, I'll be honest, that's not, that's not the best strategy in, in 1v1 for Austria. But the French player does need, need to make very precise responses in order to counter that strategy. And if they don't notice what you're doing or they don't know what those precise responses are, then you'll you'll win just from the fact that you did something that they're not used to seeing. Uh, that won't work <laughs> against a, an expert player. You you might have heard this. I uh, I'm reluctant even uttering the word because I I hate this idiom, the term a cheese strategy. So to me, what a what a cheese strategy means, and I ugh, ugh it's disgusting me even to say this phrase. <laughs> Uh, but to me, what that means is a strategy that only works if your opponent doesn't know what it is and doesn't see it coming. But if that's the situation that you're in, you're playing against someone who doesn't know what that strategy is and doesn't see it coming, then it'll win for sure. It wins for sure against people who don't understand it. But I think there's some, there's some things you can do that kind of go in that direction. Um, that there are some, ways you there's some strategies you can play with diplomacy that the other player um if they've never seen it before you know they might fall for it let's make an, a comparison to like lepanto which is um a, it's a stand, that is not a cheese strategy it is a standard tool in the italian strategic toolkit um but if the turkish player has never played and they've never seen that before they could fall for it and be crushed I'll, I know I know an example of an opening strategy that I consider to be ridiculous, but if it works, can pay off. Have you ever heard of the centrifuge opening for Germany? The opening is Berlin to Prussia, Munich to Kiel, and Kiel to Baltic. And the reason why this is a ridiculous strategy and why, why I'm calling it a cheese strategy or whatever 
is that uh, the more conventional German openings of opening with Kiel to either Denmark or Holland guarantees that Germany is going to be able to make a neutral capture and uh, most likely two because most English players aren't willing to forego their own capture just to stop Germany from getting one. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to get these two captures for sure. And then it's just a question of what happens with my, you know, vis-a-vis Belgium and like, do I bounce Russia out of Sweden or something like that? And uh, it's, 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 it's solid. And most games where Germany wins begin like that, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Uh, but the centrifuge opening is this idea that um, Germany m- begins by moving the army to Prussia and not, not, not to Silesia, which is normally the more like, even if you were going to attack Russia, you might do that or something. It's they're going to, Germany's going to convoy into Denmark. And the point of convoying in, of, of playing this way is to set up for a supported attack on Sweden or possibly to move your fleet at Baltic into Gulf of Bothnia and hope to just outguess Russia and get in there. You're, you're, what you're ultimately trying to achieve is a situation where as Germany, you have a fleet in Baltic and a fleet in Gulf of Bothnia and you've captured Denmark and Sweden, but with armies. And the logic here is that you're going to crush Russia early and then whip around through St. Petersburg and Norway to attack England. England won't see this coming because you never sent the fleets in that direction, etc. And this is this is not a good this is please, please don't do this. Nobody, nobody in the world do this <laughs> opening for gunboat diplomacy because leaving your whole Western Front unguarded against the two far more powerful gunboat powers of France and England to take down Russia right away is like even if it works this isn't that great of a plan and most of the time um England and and or France are just going to come after you while they can but if you pull it off uh wiping out Russia first does if you somehow wipe out Russia and then go after France and England you can take them both on you're like a turbocharged Germany impressed diplomacy that's a that's not a bad strategy sometimes uh, but in gunboat, it's it's. I don't think it's very wise. I, I almost like. I would guess I should say anything goes in press diplomacy. Like you, you, you can make anything work, uh, in my opinion. So I think that in where I'm willing to start taking risk in in a gunboat diplomacy game is usually after 1901. Like in 1901, I play very methodically. I make the same openings even, like what I assess to be the best opening. I usually make that opening. I mean, gosh, the game just started. You know, do I want to risk so much uh, right at the start when if I if I play conservatively, there's plenty of time for the situation to develop and for me to get opportunities is it's usually how I see it. Uh, one exception I'll make is that as Austria, I invariably make the Balkan Gambit opening, which does risk it- Italy attacking. And my logic there is if Italy is willing to attack me in 1901, there's no way I'm winning this game anyway. <laughs> so let me add this. When I am Italy, I am unwilling to take I'm, – I'm typically unwilling to take offensive risk 
by attacking Austria. And this is something that is a this is an interesting concept. I'm, I'm Italy in gunboat diplomacy. I view attacking Austria as a risk. And the reason why this is a risk is that if Turkey ends up turbocharged as a result of my attack, I'm not I'm going to lose. And uh, even if I win, Turkey can probably fight me to a draw because Turkey has a corner. And uh, if anybody in the West gets strong, I'm not going to grind down Turkey faster than they're going to take over the whole n northern part of the map. So some players, I, 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 I think they don't necessarily perceive that attacking Austria immediately as Italy entails all this strategic risk, even though you might get a, a tactical gain out of it. And here's why I view it as so risky. In a gunboat game, I have no idea what are the capabilities of the other players, their skill levels, their intentions. I don't have any read on them at the beginning of the game. I need several turns of information of seeing how they move before I can assess how they play. And I view as Italy, one of my, my core strengths as Italy is that I have the opportunity to wait a year, really several years. Italy could go three or four years without attacking anybody with no problem, like no no ultimate consequences because Italy didn't make early gains. That's, that's not a big deal. And I view that as a big advantage because it means that I have lots of time to assess the board and where I need to go and who I should attack. Now I see, okay, well, Turkey attacked Russia right away and Russia's putting up a spirited defense. Austria seems kind of like a fool. All right, all right, I'll go after Austria. And that's to me, that's much less much less risky because I'm making that decision based on information that I that I know, that I've learned from watching the game unfold. I think that the 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 lesson here that I draw is that the further you get into the match, the more appropriate it may be to take risks because you have much more information and you can um, assess the risks more accurately. Whereas making big gambles really early in the game, I, I personally don't think that's the way to go because what, you don't know what, what the risk is <laughs> that you're taking or the, or the chances of it, of it working. There are players who feel differently, uh, especially with press diplomacy, people that like are like, no, I negotiate my entire alliance in 1901 before any moves and then I go all in on that. That can work. It's not for me. <laughs> I, I have I have done it a few times. I once I played Key Lepanto as Austria, and it worked out. But I think that I was willing to do that because I was not a very good player back then. I didn't really understand what I was getting into. <laughs> Another way you could phrase that is there are some people who um, are risk seekers. That that they just enjoy risk taking, even if it's not necessarily beneficial. This is, this is an excessive amount of risk here. I mean, you're risking everything in return for something rather small, but some people, um, that they enjoy that approach to games in general. This is the kind of person who I imagine um, would really enjoy coming to a casino, you know, for fun. Because uh, in a casino, you know for sure <laughs> that it's a bad bet. Uh, but nevertheless, people have fun. People have fun, even though they know it's a bad bet. That kind of person, the risk seeker, I guess they place a premium actually on risk because it adds to their fun. That's that ain't me. <laughs> I, uh, I I do not have fun in a casino. I've been a few times in my life and I usually just want to leave. 
I think there are two ways that one can misjudge a risk situation, or at least two ways. One is to misassess the risk itself, and the other is to have reads that are off. And I, you can play a game where you um, make really obvious tactical choices turn after turn in order to deliberately mislead the players into thinking that you're very methodical and you don't take uh, huge risks. So that way, when the time comes to take a huge risk, it's very likely to work. Well, you were right, Paul, that you're, the, the topic that you brought was wide and deep enough for us to talk about it the entire time. <laughs> Thanks for coming. See you around. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and review the podcast on iTunes. To learn more from your board brother and to participate in the dojo, visit brotherboard.com. Thanks to Loyalty Freak Music for the theme music, It Feels Good to Be Alive too.